so I'm <clears throat> really happy to be here with you this evening. And when I was working on the talk today, I decided I would call it Meeting Our Suffering. And as I sat here before the talk during the sitting, I thought, you know, I came here, I thought, to teach about this amazing practice of working with suffering. And I thought I came here to teach with my good friend Norman Fisher, who also wrote the book that has been so powerful in my own life. So it was a bit like being with my teacher. I don't know if he knows that, but now he does. Except that, of course, my teacher turned out to be not Norman at all, but this whatever it is that I've got that I've been struggling with in the last um, few days. And, you know, it's really interesting. At 73, um, even a simple infection can bring up that question, you know, is this it? Is this the, is this the thing that's going to take me out? You know, is it really a bug or do I have this or that? And, of course, I don't have the answer, do I? Because we never do. We never do. Even if you're 30 and you get something, maybe that's it. So that question is always there. And it's, it's actually been quite interesting to know that you were all here doing these practices and sitting and walking and being in this amazing place. And there I was doing what I was doing and really feeling the, the movement back and forth between the two. So I'm here doing what um, all of us are doing all the time, trying to figure out how to be a human being and to do a reasonably decent job of it. So tonight I wanted to talk about a couple of things. I wanted to talk about the teachings of the Buddha, about the various forms of suffering. And I also want to talk a bit about the practice of Tonglen, which I know you have been doing today, and about how it's an amazingly skillful tool to help us address the many forms of distress that we encounter in this human life. So you're at the end of the second day of the retreat. And I imagine that for every person here, it's not just me that's been struggling, you know. There's been some struggle for everyone. And we've all come here to do this practice. And it's always worth remembering what an unusual opportunity it is to get to practice. You know, the image, probably many of you know it, but many of you are new, so you might not. The image about coming to practice is the image that in all of the vast oceans of the world, there is floating around on the surface, I like to think of it as a life preserver, one life preserver. And in all of the vast oceans of the world, there is a blind sea turtle. Your chance of coming to the Dharma is about as good, of having human lifetime, I'm sorry, is about as good as that sea turtle coming up right in the middle of that life preserver. Those chances aren't real great, you know. Not all those oceans and not one turtle and one life preserver. So that's pretty rare, just to get to be a human being. 
and rarer yet to even hear the Dharma, and even rarer to get to practice the Dharma. So this is a very, very precious opportunity that we have when we gather here. And you all know and or are finding out that although it's a very simple practice what we do here, it's not very easy. It's really, really hard. So since we're all struggling, and it's throughout our experience, I thought that was the thing to talk about tonight. And I especially wanted to stress how giving our attention to suffering is a really important ingredient in the spiritual journey. And in fact, um, it's actually essential in the spiritual journey. It's really, I think, the foundation of refuge. Isn't that interesting? That the suffering that we experience can actually become the foundation of our refuge. I've certainly wanted to get rid of whatever this is that's been bugging me. It's been coming and going for a couple of weeks now. And, you know, there are lots of times when I've been lying there feeling pretty miserable, thinking, I wish it would just go away. You know, why doesn't it just go away? And I'm sure you've had some similar feelings about the pain in your back or the ache in your knees or the sadness in your heart that has been with you. you we always hope that um, we can get rid of some of these things. Or you may even have hoped that if you got here to the retreat, to this lovely place inside these gates, um, that you would be able to be free of whatever suffering has been with you in recent weeks. So much of our spiritual practice centers around questions of pain and suffering, sometimes called the problem of suffering. And it, it's big things, like why do, why do bad things happen to good people? You know, that's, that's one question that hangs around pretty much in all worlds of practice. How can we not be overwhelmed by our own suffering? Or how can we not be terrified by the things that come toward us? And these questions are often what propel us into our journey. That's what gives us the kickstart that we need to come to practice. They're the, the thread that we follow. William Stafford has a wonderful poem that I read a lot at retreats. He says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. And you suffer and get old. <laughs> yes. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So our own stories, our own stories of practice, often begin with that place of being lost, of confusion, of betrayal, of illness. If we had the great pleasure, because it is kind of fun to do, to sit around and talk tonight about, you know, each person's spiritual journey. 
um, often when I've heard those stories, they begin with some moment like that. Someone got ill, someone died, and there was some huge betrayal in a life, there was abuse or whatever. For many, um, the suffering that we um, carry around with us begins in our childhood. So there are many, many people who have experiences of abandonment and bullying and abuse and injury. And for some, of course, the suffering comes later, maybe even as a bit of a surprise if you've had a fairly protected childhood, as we encounter the world of relationships and work or we live in areas that are affected by environmental disaster or even by wars. So the Buddha, the Buddha was one who didn't encounter suffering as a child. In fact, he lived a very, very protected life. He was deliberately kept from exposure to illness and death. And he was um, destined to be a great ruler himself. In fact, it's said that his father, who was a king, knew that if he was exposed to suffering, he would probably become a great spiritual leader. And so the story is that his daddy liked the ruler idea better, that his son would follow in his footsteps. So he tried to prevent that from happening. So he, he had a summer palace and a winter palace, and you know they would go around and take the dead leaves off the trees before he ever saw them, and pull up the dead plants, and... He, he just never saw anything that um, let him know that life was anything other than kind of beautiful and always kind of nice. However, the young Gotama got a little bit itchy, as all young men do, and <clears throat> one night he persuaded his companion, who was the charioteer, to take him into town. So... When he got there, he met what are known as the heavenly messengers. He saw someone who was sick, terribly sick, and he was astounded. What was that? He said to his friend. He said, well, that man is sick. And Gotama said, well, can that happen to me? And the answer was, yeah, it can. And then he saw someone who was very, very old, and he'd never seen an old being before. You know, the skin's kind of sagging and wrinkles and all of that. And couldn't believe what was happening. What happened to this guy? Well, this person is old, said the charioteer. And the Buddha said, well, can that happen to me? And the charioteer said, yeah, it will. You know, it happens to everyone if you live that long. And then they saw someone who was dead, completely lifeless. And the Buddha, again, was amazed. And what was this, this this corpse that wasn't breathing? And could that happen to him? And yes, the charioteer said it would. And, you know, it was interesting, even as I thought about this this week, you know, here I am, I'm being sick. I'm normally a pretty healthy being. Is this happening to me? Can this happen to me? You know, not me. And... um, I'm asking, you know, the same questions and getting the same answers. Yeah, you know, that's the answer. It can happen and it will. 
And when we look in the mirror and see the changes that come as we're getting old, or sometimes the changes that come when we're not feeling so good, we actually see it. We see that these things come to all people. So that's the first three messengers. And then the fourth messenger walked by, and that person was a monk in robes. And he walked by, you know, I like to think of him as walking by the sick person, and he walked by the old person, and he walked by the dead person. And he seemed quite serene in the face of all this difficulty, and even happy. And so the Buddha went, got curious, like, what, what did he know? How, how could he be facing what seemed incredibly difficult and still have this degree of calm and serenity? And again, that's the question for all of us, isn't it? How do we face these things? How do we face our own old age, sickness, and death and have some level of calm and acceptance. So that's what set the Buddha on his path. And he left home, and he found teachers, and he began to seek answers for his questions. And he found them, but interestingly enough, he didn't find the answers in the many forms of esoteric teachings or ascetic practices that were available to him in that day. He tried them all, and it said that as he tried them and as he learned the different practices, each time he got to be better than his teacher, and then his teacher would ask the Buddha, or Gotama then, to be his teacher. And, um, but in the end, he walked away from all of that, And what he found and what led to his own awakening was deep attention to his own present moment experience. So after some time, after he had that night of awakening, he began to teach. And actually he offered some very, very simple and powerful teachings which have reverberated now for more than 2,500 years. And if you, actually, if you read through the sutta material, you begin to see that there's some very simple themes that the Buddha teaches over and over and over again in different ways to different groups of people. And the core of these teachings is this teaching about, that's often called the Four Noble Truths. So these teachings have touched the hearts of all Buddhist practitioners all over the globe. And through all these years, they're so nourishing and they're so simple. A student who uh, attended some things that I taught in the early years of my teaching, somebody who'd been to lots of retreats, said one night she didn't know how many talks she'd heard about the Four Noble Truths. And I suspect some of you are sitting here thinking, I wonder how many talks I've heard about the Four Noble Truths. Um, And she said, but that's okay, because it's always like when fresh bread comes out of the oven. You know, there's never too much fresh bread. You know, it's always so 
smells so good, tastes so good. So these teachings can be heard again and again, and um, they really provide enough practice for a lifetime. If you didn't hear any other teachings, you could probably make these do for an entire life of practice. So there's four truths, and each one has three things that it's important to see about it. Um, So, just to go through the list, again, for those of you who are having another slice of fresh bread, and maybe for the first time for some of you, we see that there is suffering in many, many forms. It's called dukkha in Pali. And we'll talk a little bit about the meaning of dukkha in in a minute. And after we see how much there is, we begin to figure out that we need to understand it. I have to kind of figure out what's going on here. And then it's important to know after you've worked on it a bit that you have understood it. You actually have some grasp of what's happening. And we see that the biggest problem is that we have this desire for things to be other than what they are. We get really attached to that desire. We don't want it this way. We want it that way. And this attachment is what leads to the most difficult form of suffering. And we see that we have to let go. We see that we have to let go of the attachment. And when it's finally done in bigger or smaller ways, we see that we have let go of the attachment. And then, the good news, we see that we aren't suffering. Hooray! There's an end to suffering. But of course, we don't always see it right away, even, even if it's beginning to happen. So it has to be made real, you know, this ending of suffering. And then we have to know that it's so. And then finally, we see that there's a way to live our lives that leads to more and more letting go and to less and less attachment. And that's the Eightfold Path of wise view and wise intention, of wise speech, action, and livelihood, and wise effort, mindfulness, and concentration. So we take this on as a practice. It's a path. It's not called a path for nothing. It's a way. And we develop it. And then gradually, as we develop it, we begin to see that we have indeed developed it. So we see each of the truths. We see what needs to be done in order to understand it or to know it. And then we see the result of the practice. So it's really important. You know, sometimes I think in the practice world, we get this idea that you can't ever acknowledge that you did anything or you've seen something or you've gotten somewhere. Um, And that's actually inherent in these teachings is it's a good idea to see what you've done. If you're suffering less, that's great, and you should tell yourself that story. And if you manage to let go even in a little bit of a way, tell yourself that story. If you've gotten a lot better about wise speech or wise action, and you're behaving better in the world, tell yourself that story, because that's part of how we really take it in. And nowhere, nowhere in any of this does the Buddha say 
that you can't begin practice until your suffering is out of the way. So you don't have to get your suffering done with first. So this dukkha, this is the nature of the human condition called dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A in the Pali. It's not pejorative, it's just a fact. It's there. And the word dukkha, we tend to translate it as suffering, but it's actually more when things are kind of out of round, you know, so the wheel that always goes thump when it comes around to the flat part, or things are inherently unsatisfactory, they're never perfect, there's always something wrong or something that's not quite cooked yet. And so there's that place where it's like a pebble in your shoe, you know, it's just not right. And he says there are three kinds of this dukkha. So one we're pretty familiar with, and that's sometimes called dukkha dukkha, (laughs) or suffering suffering if you want. And that is the pain of human existence. That's that place where we have bodies, they do get sick, they do get aged, they do hurt, um, they do die, there's relationships that fall apart, and there's work that's hard, and there's conditions that are unpleasant, and it's all the stuff that is utterly inescapable. You can't get out of it. So we want it to be escapable, don't we? Somehow, if I only eat all the right things and, and don't drink the wrong things and, and exercise properly and have healthy relationships, somehow I will remain young and vibrant, like the old people on the TV ads, you know, with my white hair blowing in the wind and riding on a motorcycle or whatever it is that they're doing. And somehow we'll be able to escape it. And we can't, you know, it is inherent, dukkha dukkha. The second one is anicca dukkha, the word anicca is about impermanence, and this kind of dukkha or unsatisfactoriness is built around the notion that everything is utterly impermanent. There isn't anything you're going to get that's going to last, not even the best stuff, you know, the perfect partner, the perfect meal, the great lovemaking, whatever it is that we try to hold on to, you know, we're going to make it last, we're going to do it exactly the same way next time. It never does, does it? It's impermanent, and it goes away. And then the last is one, is one called Sankara Dukkha, and it's the way in which all formations are dissolving. Everything's kind of really fragile. It's not very solid. And we crave solidity. We want it to be, you know, I can touch it, I can hold on to it, that's what it is. And nothing is solid, really. None of this is avoidable. None of it's avoidable. And working with the various forms of dukkha and the attachments around them is what brings healing to our experience, actually. And it gets more complex. He saw, the Buddha saw, how it all goes around in cycles. He saw that we go around and around, repeating the same variety of pain and difficulties over and over 
the same relationship issues, the same work issues, the same addictive patterns, maybe even the same lifetime issues. And we've all seen that. Every one of us here could tell a story about something you've done in your life where you've repeated the same pattern, the same unskillful pattern, over and over again. We've repeated a few of the skillful ones too, which is good. But the unskillful ones are the ones that that catch our attention. And we get caught in dissatisfaction and stress and anguish. And we go around and around. It's like like the hamster on the wheel, you know, around and around and around. There is no freedom. And in fact, the Buddha described it as a wheel. He called it the wheel of dependent origination. And he just says in that teaching, in its most simple version, that at any given time when we have an experience, we don't see clearly because our mind is clouded by the consciousness that's conditioned by filters from past experience. So, you know, you could imagine if someone who looked just like your mother walked through the door over there, it might kick off a few, few things in your mind and heart. Um, or maybe the person looks just like your ex or just like the person who abused you as a child. And it's, it would be very hard to see that person as someone you didn't know at all because you would have the filter of that past experience. So we perceive through the lens of the old story. And we react out of that. And sometimes it's pleasant. Sometimes the person who's walking through the door reminds us of something really great. That's yummy and I want more of it. Or sometimes it's, oh no, you know, I don't like, I know I don't like that person right away. Or sometimes we don't notice. So this, this just gets a whole cycle going. Then we, then we want it or we don't want it. We get attached to a particular outcome. We do something that's not so skillful. And then there's more suffering again. And then it goes around and around. We repeat the difficult relationship or the work situation. And we get stuck. We get stuck in anxiety and pain and grief and despair. Everyone in this room has done this. And if you haven't, I'd sure like to meet you. But I don't think there's anybody here that that would say that. And each one of us knows how unhappy um, we can be. You know, I look around the room. There's a lot of people I know here at this retreat. I'm so sorry I haven't gotten to hang out with you a bit more. And we've been practicing together for a long time, some of us. A long time. And I don't think any of us has ended our suffering yet. You know, maybe less. Sylvia likes to talk about the third and a half noble truth, that if there isn't a complete ending of suffering, at least there's less suffering. So I like that teaching a lot. And again, you know, in this last week, as I've been dealing with these health issues, I can see that I'm, I'm attached. I'm really, I told Norman this just before we came in here that I was attached to being alive. He said, good. <laughs> but it could be a problem, you know, if I weren't going to be alive. So, so, and then you can see where the suffering would come, right? And here in retreat, you know, retreats are amazing. You come here, you're just minding your own business. You've come to do a good thing. You've arranged your life. You know, you've set aside things for a period of time. Some of you have traveled some distance to get here. 
And you walk in and you settle down and you'd think you could get a little bliss, you know. And maybe you do, but you probably also have gotten some of this pain that's come up and the issues from the attachments and the cycles of suffering. So retreat seems to be the place where we visit the old suffering and new suffering as well. Sometimes we see things that we haven't seen before because we haven't really been paying attention. Um, It's been noted that the Buddha's teaching uh, might have been based on the medical model of his time and ours, and so where you notice the suffering and then you try to find the causes and then you seek to bring healing. And again, it's so important to notice that nowhere in that model and nowhere in the medical model does it say pretend it's not happening. You know, nowhere. It really invites us to go into that place where things are dark and difficult. I always think when I'm at this point and talking about suffering, I think of that great old story about Nasruddin, you know, who was the great Sufi saint. And um, Nasruddin was um, visiting with a friend and then he went to leave and he couldn't find his car keys. And so he started hunting around, hunting around, hunting around. And um, his, he went out in the front, you know, hunting around under the streetlight and his friend came out and he said, well, do you think you lost your car keys out here, you know, near the streetlight? And Nasruddin said, no, but it's dark over there and it's not so dark over here. So, you know, he wasn't looking in the right place, right? He had to look in the dark if he was going to find his car keys. And we so often um, don't want to look in the dark. When we, and when we do look in the dark, when we're finally willing to go to that place that is um, difficult or that we've been avoiding, that can be actually a profound turning, a profound change the place of beginning to come to terms with our suffering is sacred. And it's the first step on the path to liberation. We must, if we're following this thread of suffering, liberation, we must become students of our own suffering. And the instructions are so simple, although I actually don't know what Norman's been telling you these last couple of days, but I'm assuming they're probably nice, simple, zeny instructions. And so, you know, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. It's a great instruction for practice. This is the way the hurting knee is. This is the way the breath is. This is the way my aching heart is. This is the way having cancer is. This is the way separation and loss are. We meet the pain. We meet the difficulty. We give it our attention. We meet that which is uncomfortable and um, or even we meet that when we're caught in wanting or when we have to do what we don't want to do. We meet whatever is there. We so often move away We so often move away. We pick up the glass of wine. We take the ibuprofen. We turn on the TV or head back into the computer game or the phone app. We are unwilling sometimes to give any attention at all 
to our suffering. We miss an opportunity when we do this. We miss an opportunity. One great meditation teacher, a man whose name was Ajahn Liam, who was lived in Thailand in the last century, described, in talking about his practice, he described his fear as his worthy opponent. So this was the this was the opponent that when he wrestled with it over and over again, that's what took him deeper and deeper into practice. He wasn't embarrassed by it. He didn't say, I'm a great meditation teacher. I, I don't have any fear. You know, he said, I have fear, and this is my worthy opponent. So, you know, did you wrestle with your suffering today? And if you did, what did you learn about it? What is the flavor of the suffering you have today? Is it flat-out pain? Maybe. Or is it impermanence? Or is it some loss that's happening in your life? Or maybe you had a sort of a honeymoon day at the retreat yesterday, and today it's a lot harder, and so you're missing out on that bliss state that you had. Or maybe there's grief for someone who's passed, or there's some sense that none of this feels very solid and there's some doubt that's arising in the mind and the heart. And if you haven't wrestled today, I invite you to resolve to do so tomorrow. You know, there's lots of opportunities here. There are lots of things. You know, your roommate might be a bit difficult or maybe the food isn't quite to your liking or, again, it might be life without your phone or there might be sounds that you don't like. You know, so you pick your form of suffering. It doesn't matter too much what it is, whatever comes to hand, and see what happens if you meet it. So this is the place, I think, where it seems that this practice of Tonglen can be really helpful. So you've been doing Tonglen today. I know Norman let me know early that you included me in your Tonglen, and I was very aware of it. I could sort of feel it over here during the day. And um, I'm very appreciative and thank every one of you. Um, And so that practice where we're taking in our suffering and sending out our compassion and doing this taking and sending with the breath, breathing in, breathing out. So simple. It's so simple. And it's so profound. Our own pain and that of the world can be so enormous and can seem to be way more. How can we possibly address them? How can we possibly address them? Or even these teachings, these teachings about working with suffering, sometimes they're too noble. It's like they're too big and too powerful. How can I really do that? And so the thing that I love about the Tonglen practice is that it's so simple and it's so handy. It's like you can carry it around in your pocket like a special stone or something because all it takes is breathing in the suffering and breathing out the compassion in any situation, whether you're on your cushion or on the street. So really important, one of the first instructions about Tonglen is to begin with yourself. What a relief, you know, to be able to just breathe it and you don't have to fix it. You don't have to figure it. You don't have to make it be anything other than it is. It's just suffering. 
You don't have to look better than you feel. Just breathe in whatever's there. Just be willing to kind of let it be what it is. That's a big step, but it's simple. And then in this amazing way, as it shifts, as it comes into our heart, breathing out the, con- the compassion. So we do it here for ourselves on the cushion. I certainly was doing my best to do it as I have been lying in bed a lot in the last few days. Just breathing in, breathing out. Simple mindfulness, the very most basic practice that we teach here at Spirit Rock. The simple allowing is the first step. So as we sit here and we say, you know, give your attention to the breath. Notice the breath. Notice sounds. Notice the ache in your body. And notice the sadness and the fear and the places that you're upset. So that, that practice of allowing one thing after another is very, very much the first part of the Tonglen practice. Dana Falls wrote a poem called Allow. She says, there's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So as we allow as we take in this pain or this difficulty, as we breathe it in, we discover that something really interesting happens because compassion just does arise in the heart. It's pretty amazing. You know, breathe it in, breathe in my own pain, and there I am. It's almost like I'm holding myself like a child and patting myself on the back, going, oh, poor boo-boo, poor thing. Instead of the kind of judgment and criticism that we often come up with when we think we're not doing so well. So we actually breathe in the difficulty, and the compassion arises, and we breathe it out. Very simple, very natural. It's utterly natural. And... You know, it doesn't make the pain or the unhappiness or the illness go away. It doesn't just go away. But we feel feel held. And so much, that's what we want, is that sense of being held by compassion. And of course, we can do it for others as well. That's the place where you have it in your pocket. You know, for many years, I've had my what I call my siren practice. So if I hear sirens... I go to Tonglen, maybe just for a couple of breaths. But, you know, if a siren's going off, you know at the very least somebody's scared or anxious. 
You know, maybe it's just the cop behind the wheel in his car, but it's a little, probably a little scary to be doing that. Or maybe he's after somebody and that person is scared. Or maybe there's an accident or a fire or, you know, we can go on. And so there's fear out there and upset. And so breathe in that suffering. Just take it in. Send out a little compassion. Breathe in the suffering. Send out a little compassion. Or going by accidents on the freeway, same thing. You know, you know that people are distressed there. You can just do that little piece of practice. Or like I described the first night when I saw the homeless fellow on the street in San Francisco and there was such sadness and misery and pain and nothing I could do. I was in the car and moving, you know. Um, But I could do that practice and hope that somehow, and I think there is a somehow, that compassion goes out and somewhere it does something. You know, it's often said that Buddhism is a bit depressing because it's all about suffering. (laughs) And of course, in a way it's true, right? It is kind of all about suffering. But um, what it is is really about discovering that when we really face it and face our pain, we discover that it is manageable and not only that, that great healing can arise from this meeting. And, you know, you think of all the spiritual teachers who encountered suffering and who wrestled with it, you know, the Buddha, certainly, and Jesus, and Muhammad and Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King, and Nelson Mandela, and St. Francis, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. Lots of people who have suffered and then, you know, somehow grown out of that place and been able to bring great healing to the world. And the world is filled with people who, like every one of us, have had some suffering as children and have met the difficulties and the deep wounds of that time and have moved beyond. I was thinking, as I wrote this, about, you know, as I mentioned, I had a pretty protected childhood, didn't see a lot of conflict. In fact, I think it was hidden from me. And um, I didn't really learn, begin to learn or to grow until my first marriage began to fall apart. And I was astounded that people who were married fought. Never had occurred to me. I thought you were polite or something like that, I guess. I'm pretty stupid when I look back on it. But there I was. And it demanded, as I worked through that situation, that I look at my own shadow and my own dark side and begin to consider my own woundedness and the woundedness of others. One of the things I found during that time as I did the practices that I was doing then was a wonderful saying from the Asclepian Healing Mysteries. It says this. It says, God sends the wound. God is the wound. God is wounded. And God heals the wound. God sends the wound, God is the wound, God is wounded, and God heals the wound. Now, whatever you feel about the word God is not perhaps so important. What this points to is that the meeting of pain and suffering is sacred work. There is something very deeply divine when we are willing to do this. 
So this work with dukkha that is inherent in our human existence that it's possible to wake up to is the door to refuge. And when we are able to meet it and to be less attached, if not totally unattached, we can learn to be happy and to be content with what is. The Buddha wanted all beings to be happy. He says that many times in his teachings. He wanted us to wake up so we didn't have to get caught in the endless repetitive cycle of suffering. In fact, when he was thinking about teaching after his enlightenment experience, he almost didn't. He wasn't going to. He didn't think people would be able to hear his teachings. And then some deva came down and persuaded him that there were just there were a few beings out there with just a little sand in their eyes and maybe they could hear what he had to say. Aren't we glad? Because if he hadn't done that, we might not be sitting here. We might not have these teachings. So he wanted us to wake up. But he never says that we don't have to suffer at all or that we don't uh, have to get caught. The first step is really to see your own suffering and to see where you're caught. And then to really meet your opponent, your own fear, your restlessness, your physical pain, your lust, your grief. And in that bowing, as we bow to our worthy opponents, you know, in that bowing, in that acknowledgement, we actually begin. And it may take years, it may take years, it may take a lifetime, but heroic journeys seem to take a while. The Buddha assures us that waking up is possible, and that he would not tell us about it if it were not possible to do so. So he says, he, he says, he's really saying, I know you have it in you. You can do it if you work on this. <coughs> so in these days here at this retreat, we hope that you will soften into your own suffering and meet it and that you will wake up as you open to this experience and that you will find in this astounding practice of Tonglen a way to hold that suffering, which is helpful and um, helps you with both your own suffering and that of others, and is a practice you can very much take out into the world. And then your suffering will have become the door to refuge, and it will, in fact, in a very strange way, become a refuge and a teacher. It will become the foundation of and the first step toward awakening and liberation. So I think I'll read again the Stafford poem about the thread and leave you with that. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you can do can stop time's unfolding. You don't ever let go of the thread. So let's just stay right where you are. Let's just breathe together for a moment.
So thank you very, very much for your incredible support and for your practice and for your presence. Have a good walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.